There is nothing we should be quite so grateful for as the last line of a poem that goes, when your own heart asks, be resolved, young samurai, and tell the world what you witness here today. No member of the Empire may be tainted without their consent. But now that war has come, how many are secretly begging my father for his blessings? Who said that? Kenpeki. Yeah? Son of Daigotsu. Welcome to our ninth episode explaining Legend of the Five Rings on the It's a Mimic channel. I'm Megan, and with me again is Roman. Hello. In this episode, we're going to be discussing the denizens of the Shadowlands, along with the many spirit realms of the Legend of the Five Rings. Starting with taint. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So it's something that we spoke about in the episode on the spider. Yeah. We we kept referencing the taint and, you know, what the taint is, but folks really didn't get a full understanding of the scope of it, so we're going to dive into that and where it comes from now. That makes sense. Yeah. Where does it come from? Uh, it comes from Jigoku, which is the realm of evil. A realm of pure and darkest evil, and the source of the Oni in the Shadowlands. Much of Jigoku is nearly formless and shapeless. The realm itself is a maelstrom of pain and suffering, with the yokai spirits being constantly hounded and tortured by Oni. The Shadowlands were originally a tropical paradise of color and light, which changed when Fulang fell from heaven and left a crater known as the Festering Pit, deep within the lands of the south. It was here that the taint spread out, blighted, and corrupted the land. Oni and evil spirits could pass freely between Jigoku and Ningendo from the Festering Pit. The Shadowlands is a passage between Ningendo and Jigoku, existing in both realms simultaneously. As part of a bargain with the current Empress Iweko I, the taint is withheld from any human who did not willingly wish to embrace it. Uh, the Shadowlands is a constantly shifting and uninhabitable nightmare come to life, and it is home to Oni, ogres, trolls, goblins, the lost, which are, of course, heavily tainted samurai, mm -hmm. and countless other vile creatures. Jigoku is one of the most jealous realms, exerting its control in the form of the Shadowlands Taint. Taint was the process of physical and mental corruption gained by entering or associating with the Shadowlands Oni, or the practice of Maho, or blood magic. The Taint was a physical manifestation of Jigoku's hold on the mortal realm. Sometimes it is called the Sixth Element. Other than a very few special cases, there is no way of removing the taint. Many would choose to embrace the taint for the power provided in spite of its consequences. The taint is real bad fucking juju. <laughs> Are you sure? It um, sounds really good. So, <laughs> it, it, again, it used to be this thing that you could contract just by rubbing up against an oni yeah. or being around tainted things for too long. Mm -hmm. Now, you have to either consume tainted food. Yeah be wounded by something tainted mm -hmm. or you have to pray to the dark fortunes and accept it and accept it yeah there are benefits to being tainted you know yeah. um it can make you incredibly strong fast beautiful all these things however as you become more and more tainted worse things start to happen to you so your blood starts to turn black mm -hmm. and starts to smell bad your hair starts to fall out your teeth start to fall out. Like, you start to rot as the corruption takes hold of your body. Yeah. Uh, the way that it works in game mechanics is at around anything less than a full rank of taint, your taint is undetectable. Yeah. As soon as you get to one rank of taint, uh, jade starts to hurt you. Mm -hmm. As you go into, you know, rank two, rank three, rank four, your mind starts to slowly become influenced by the realm of evil. And you have to make checks to stop yourself from giving yourself over to it. Yeah. At five full ranks of taint, it's pass your character sheet to the GM because you belong to you're, evil. Yeah, now. you're you're corrupted fully. Like, mm -hmm. yeah. Sometimes it makes you a gorgeous demon creature. Sometimes it makes you like a bubbling ball of pustules. Yeah. Well, when I was when I was looking through the book, there is like a section where there is like a list of different mutations that your body can take form or take. And there's advantages and disadvantages similar to like when you're building a character yep. for these certain things to have. I feel like it would be really fun to be a DM and just roll that on a table for somebody. Or if you're playing in a game that specifically is, 
dabbling in these areas. Like, I know you guys played, like, an undead campaign. I say that with air, air quotes, but it was like a, you were, what was the name of it? We we weren't the ones dabbling in the taint, but no. there was a lot of tainted stuff around us, yeah. right? Yeah. So some folks ended up becoming tainted, but didn't become tainted enough mm -hmm. for any of those cool things to start popping off. Like, nobody had glowing eyes. Nobody had... The forked tongue. No one had the... Yeah, the, the prehensile <laughs> tail. None of that stuff. So, um... Yeah, one thing that I mentioned earlier was that jade hurts you if you're tainted. Yeah. And not only does it hurt you or other things that are tainted, it offers protection from being tainted. Yes. So that's why a lot of the crab will carry jade on them when they go on forays into the Shadowlands. Mm -hmm. It's uh, one of the three sacred substances. Well, I did that in, for my campaign. They knew they were going somewhere where tainted things were going to be around. And part of the quest and plot point was to find jade. But there's a shortage in our in the world right now for Jade and where to find it. So it was like a, a big quest to get like small bits and pieces. And I think even in the book it describes that the longer you're around tainted with Jade, eventually the Jade loses its ability to protect you. Yeah. Like it gets like the, the positive energies of it eventually gets sapped out and yeah. then it's no longer helpful. So I remember them like then trying to figure out, okay, well, we have this many pieces of jade. We have this many people. Like, how long are we going to last? Like, I'm just going to roll a dice, guys. Like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Jade rationing is a thing. Yeah. But it was fun to watch. So let's, uh, let's talk about some general questions for this. So how would we navigate the taint in a plot point? I typically am writing a whole adventure around the taint if I'm using taint. Yeah. It's not one of those things where, oh, you know, you're, you're on this everyday run-of-the-mill uh, courier mission, and then all of a sudden you just, like, end up falling into some taint. No, it's there is a group of blood speakers, or there is a demon lord coming back, and you know from the get-go that the option of becoming tainted is on the table. Yeah. Because, again, as because of the way that the canon is set up now, mm -hmm. you don't just stumble into taint. No. You have to actively kind of be looking for it. Unless you choose to play a part of the history of the game that is earlier on. Yeah. So before the first Dark Deal. No, I remember something I like to keep in mind, especially when we're talking about it, doesn't necessarily have to attach itself to people, right? Like, I like I have to remember that it's environmental as well. Mm -hmm. um, and I played a big p plot point in my campaign to give them a warning. So, like, when they were wandering through the forest... Like, some of the trees were starting to die, and, like, some of the plants were, like, wilting, and there was just an icker on the ground that they couldn't quite shake. Like, and again, because of the way things are now in the campaigns, touching it doesn't necessarily mean that you were suddenly tainted in any way, shape, or form. No. So they did have the ability to wade through these to kind of figure out and get to the root cause of where, like, the pinnacle of this was, but I was able to actually utilize the environment to give them a warning. Yeah. That you might be coming up to this. You might want to stop. You might want to take a minute. You might want to go grab yourself some jade and maybe come back. Or tell somebody that this is here. You might not want to drink from that river. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you turn around, there's that one asshole just, like, sipping from the river. Uh, yeah, as the six-eyed fish swims by him. <laughs> uh, might, might be tainted. There might, there might be a problem with that, you know? Um, <clears throat> but because we talk about it in, like, D&D &D now that we're playing games all the time, right? Like, what's the, what are the clues and what are the sources of that this is something that's going to be around you at some point in time? Environment is a good thing to use. Yeah. So, like, even, like, I know it doesn't act that fast, but if you just wanted to give someone, like, a visual, like, if you're sitting at tea with somebody, all of a sudden someone's sitting there and, like, their beverage all of a sudden rots or something like that, like... But you would never be in a room with that, like, that many people that would not notice it before that happened. But, like... That, that's also the sort of thing where, because the taint is a slow, creeping, insidious thing... Yeah. That effect, like, hey, you're you're sitting in a room with this one noble, and all of a sudden, the apple in front of you rots. That's not, I'm sitting in front of somebody who's sort of tainted. That's, I'm sitting in the room with a rot demon. Yeah, they might be a little bit too pretty. <laughs> yeah. They, they, they might, you might be sitting in an illusion that is, in fact, you inside their stomach. Like, yeah. it is a severe level of taint. Yeah. And uh, most of the time, the warning signs are quite subtle, but yeah. also not at the same time. Like, this person wears a lot of perfume, but smells like three-day-old garbage regardless. Yeah. Like, this person... Um, has black veins running up their arm that you just barely see under their kimono, right? Mm -hmm. This person's, like, unearthly pale and sort of 
you know, doesn't allow a lot of sunlight into their home. Those sorts of things. Yeah. Playing into a lot of the things that you would attribute to vampires or undead in D&D. Yeah. Yeah. No, for sure. I mean, that does lead into the next question, which is like, how does the taint affect the way that you would play characters? Right. And I think the PHB does have a lot of if you don't want to try and figure it out yourself, there are tables in the PHB that kind of like you can see what happens per rank. Yeah. Depending what rank you have of taint, you can you can just take from there what's happening to them, right? But a big piece of it is the mind losing, which I always find very interesting, right? Because yeah. they end up becoming like super anxious. They end up becoming like super paranoid. Like, so like, let's say you're just wandering around with somebody in your group and all of a sudden like they just suddenly aren't. 100% or suddenly someone who is super brave is no longer brave anymore. Yeah. Or like you just see that little like a little bit of a flip of the switch. And I feel like for D- GMs, this would be a piece to use for your NPCs. Um, if you want to introduce taint into a game or you just have an NPC that is tainted, but is just living in the world, right? Because there's ways to live in the world with taint and still be a normal person. This is true. Uh, most of it involves sequestering yourself to a monastery and drinking this horrible thing called jade petal tea. Tea, yeah. And, and like... There's no jade in it, but it's just a whole bunch of weird, gross nonsense. It's an abundance of herbs and medicinal things all ground and poulticed, and it is described as being repulsive. Yeah. I feel but like... it's supposed to, like, prevent the progression of taint. Yep. Um... Also, because taint is a spiritual disease, uh, praying and living a pious life also slows the progression of the taint. Yeah. But depending on how severely tainted you are, there comes a point where you're no longer afraid of the affliction. Mm-hmm. The taint is addictive. The taint is the sort of thing that when you first come in contact with it or you first take a little bit of it, you're like, oh, well, I have to save my friends. Yeah. Oh, I, I, the village is burning down. I have to kill all these bandits. A point won't hurt. But that point slowly becomes two points. Yep. Because every time you have the option, you see that the option of the taint is there. Mm-hmm. It becomes easier and easier for you to keep using it. It Flipper snowballs, slope. right? Yeah. Like a slippery slope drug, the intro. <laughs> First, it's free. Yeah, because I did have a player at my table that um, got like run over by the taint, basically, but only to the point of like a rank. I think I only made him go up to like rank one, which was the "we're gonna put you in a monastery and we're gonna watch this and this is where you're gonna live for the rest of your life" kind of yeah. thing. And that's where his story, his character story, ended. Was you are now in a monastery and you are living your life here. No. Yeah, I mean, I have ideas for what I could else, what else I could do with his character because I do want to do like the whole like epilogue like end of the story thing for each of their characters to find out where they're in the world like 10 years later nice so i do have some ideas for him but like again like you can live in the world but if you're role playing it as a gm like it's the rank just read whatever rank you think that they're going to be at or do the math because there is a math board same thing as glory or status there is a way to determine it totally any other thoughts on how to how it would affect the way you play a character like i've never played a character that has that has taint i played a character that took points of taint Mm -hmm. willingly and again it is just as i described it snowballs and because the setting wants you to be selfless because the setting wants you to be a hero it undermines a lot of what the setting wants to do Mm -hmm. by choosing to to become tainted and you know sometimes you want to play villain sometimes you want to give your gm Mm -hmm. a villain and that's cool as long as you discuss it with them preemptively and yeah. you can both sort of work it into the story together because it's one thing to say, oh yeah, I'm going to play a, you know, badass edgelord and everybody's going to, oh, I'm going to undermine the whole party. But if it doesn't push the story forward in an interesting way, yeah, then don't do it. Mm-hmm. Right? Yeah. No, I remember like uh, for my player, they were playing characters that had a very contentious life to begin with. And then the discussion between myself and that player was like, okay, well, this is what your life would be like in Rokugan if you decided to continue on this path, which means that these are some temptations you may have. Yeah. And that's why we decided to go down that road, right? And I was like, you know what? This kind of works for what I'm trying to do. It means I'm going to have a sacrificial lamb. Phenomenal. Nice. (laughs) (laughs) All right. What happens when the tank goes wrong? Oh, boy. So many things. So many things. I, I, I eared the page for the mutations because, like, I want to talk about some body horror. Pop off my leash. Remember how, like, you were saying that there's some benefits to having, you know, being tainted? And there are some where you can get, like, uncanny speed, 
unholy stamina and like just like bump up some of your stats because you are now all of a sudden this like gross tainted monster. But like some of the things that can happen to you are things like you get tentacles or <laughs> you get tongue hide or something called undead visage, which basically means that you legitimately just look like you're dead. Yep. But like that then uh, basically, what is it? The deformity cannot be concealed and causes a fear three effect on anyone who sees it. Yeah. Fear is nasty in this game. Like, like if you think about fear in D&D, all it does is make you run or run away. But, like, it's a little bit different in L5R. Yeah, in L5R, it imposes dice penalties. Yeah. And we're going to go over more of, like, how the system works and, uh, you know, the roll keep system and all those things later on. Uh, And I guess I'll have to explain fear, because fear is probably one of the most crippling things that can happen to a character. Yeah, and it doesn't happen often. Like, it's not a mechanic that comes up unless, like, certain situations occur. Unless you're fighting Oni or Undead. Exactly. Most things do not produce fear. fear. Yeah. There are no uh, rank techniques that produce fear. There are a couple of spells that do, but it is few and far between because it is so devastating. Mm-hmm. Back to the taint. When it goes really wrong, you could be on your second rank of taint, and the realm of evil is just like, you know what? You're a terrible puppet. Yeah. I'm going to turn you to sludge. And, like, your body just melts. Surprise, sludge! (laughs) Right? Sometimes it's, oh, you have... Your body is covered in boils that just explode randomly and produce noxious gas. Like, the, the taint exacts a toll. Always. Yeah. And, like, the taint will always get paid in the end. No, I love the body horror side of it because I feel like if you were at a rank two and that started to happen to you and you had to like cover it up again to your point, you're wearing perfume, but you fucking reek all the time. Or like you constantly wear a glove because your hand is rotting away. Yeah. Right. And then like you go to shake someone's hand, but they shake you with the left hand instead of the right. Like just like small little things like that can happen. Yeah. And there's like even ones where you get extra limbs. Yeah. How do you, how do you hide an extra arm? Yeah. You know? just, or, like, seven ears just grow on the side of your face or something like that. Yeah, just, like, the weird nightmare shit <laughs> that nobody is prepared for. Yeah. Like, we did a, we, we do the Undead series where we talk about body horror all the time. But, like, I feel like the taint in L5R can do any of the options that we talk about when it comes to body horror. Because it's it's unknown. Like, you can roll a dice and it can happen to you. It's, it's like, bordering on eldritch horror. nightmare horror, yeah. right? Like such unfathomable horrible things can happen to you and typically do when you become tainted tentacle monster yeah (laughs) not the sexy kind either no not not the good kind no (laughs) (laughs) we don't kink shame here so we've discussed a non-living enemy of the empire right we've discussed the the idea of the taint and the realm of evil and that it sort of exists and in it's it's a gross, it's disease, yeah. But there are more tangible enemies of the Empire. There are enemies from within, which, you know, would be ninja, bandits, the Colat, Bloodspeakers. But there are also enemies from beyond. So, mm-hmm. Oni, spirits, and the various non-humans. And we're gonna go into some of those. So, the enemies from within the Empire. Ninja, assassins, infiltrators, agents of various factions and forces who just decide your PCs are getting too close to the plot, they gotta die. Yeah. And uh, we did we did talk about it in the spider and the what other episode? Scorpion. Scorpion episode. That like they have assassins. And to be fair, every clan has an assassin somewhere. No. No. They don't. Every clan has their less honorable family. There you go. That's what I mean. Very few clans employ assassins. That's why you employ other people. Precisely. And other clans. The spider and the scorpion both have ninja families. Mm -hmm. A funny thing about ninja is that they don't exist. Nobody talks about ninja in Rokugani society because ninja don't exist. Mm. They show up in plays. They show up in picture books as villains. But generally speaking, the existence of ninja is disavowed entirely. Yeah. Because... In a society of honorable people, nobody would ever use a ninja. You want to know how a ninja looks? Tell me more. A ninja looks like everybody else. Yeah. <laughs> it's your neighbor. <laughs> no, 100%. Yeah, it's the like, old man next door. If you go dressed as a ninja, you're probably not the ninja. You're probably a distraction, right? 
all the best ninjas, uh, like the Shosuro, are actors. They wear disguises. They show up as a servant or the lady serving tea or, yeah. you know, the old man playing Go. And then they poison you and dip. Okay, bye. <laughs> uh, bandits are usually met on the road and are typically led by Ronin. Yeah. So most of your bandits could be Ronin themselves. A lot of them are pe like disgruntled peasants who are tired of serving in the celestial wheel, but they're led by Ronin. Uh, Ronin are masterless samurai mm -hmm. who usually have a hard time finding work. And what that leads to is some honorable Ronin will work really hard and do the work of peasants and to take up odd jobs and be bodyguards. Some dishonorable Ronin will resort to banditry and most peasant Ronin will flock to them because it's okay. This guy is trained. This guy, or sorry, this person has a katana. <laughs> yeah. Which, in terms of monetary value, is absurd. Like, the, I think in the game, the value of a katana is 25 koku. Mm -hmm. One koku is the equivalent of the amount of rice and oil to feed and warm a family of four for a month. Yeah. And every samurai walks around with one and a half of these just strapped to their waist. Yeah. Right? So if you are a born ronin... So it means that, let's say you had samurai parents, or samurai parent, mm -hmm. and they don't claim you, and, but you still have the station, or you still have the uh, the emblems of your station, mm -hmm. then you're carrying around a small fortune on you. But you don't get rid of that, you don't sell it for food, because even having a katana makes you that much more important and respected that much more than the average peasant. Yeah. And again, that is why a lot of bandits will rally behind dishonorable Rodin. Right? They have some understanding of battle tactics. They have some way of um, leading people because the one of the weird things about the setting is that your blood breeds true. So if your father was a crane, even if you don't have crane schooling you're going to have crane traits. Mm -hmm. And hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of years of breeding selectively produces very strong results in your bloodline. Yeah. So that's why all the Kakita are really quick and amazing duelists. That's why all the Okoto are brilliant tacticians because the, ma the magic of your name and your bloodline in Rokugan just makes things happen. Even for Ronin, uh, the Colette are conspirators who exist to undermine the Empire. They believe that men and women should rule themselves. They believe that the gods don't exist. So in an empire and a world where you know without a shadow of a doubt that when you die, you're going to go and have to see all of your ancestors and, like, you're going to be surrounded by gods who judge you, yeah. you're like, nah, fuck that. We don't like these guys. <laughs> men and women should rule themselves. And so the Kolat throughout the history of Rokugan have been a conspiracy that have been trying to take down the Empire from within. And they employ ninja, they employ subterfuge, they employ all sorts of, um, you know, underhanded and devious methods mm -hmm. as a way of destabilizing the Empire. They are led by a variety of Kolat masters. It's it's kind of like the, the Rokugani Illuminati. Yeah. Right? Blood speakers are the evil versions of Shugenja. They entice the elemental kami through the use of blood. Yeah. And they summon oni. They pervert elemental spirits. And they do all of this, again, for power. Mm -hmm. uh, the first blood speaker was a guy named Iuchiban. And he is the whole reason why they burn their dead in Rokugan. Because... If the corpses are burnt, then they can't be raised to do someone's bidding. Yeah. Like, the rise of Iuchiban single-handedly changed the face of the Empire because it made them reevaluate what it meant to have people die and how we respect and venerate the dead. Um, Bloodspeakers and the, like, the Bloodspeaker technique can be used by anyone, whether you are a Shigenja or not. So that is what makes it so appealing. 
you know, random peasant cuts their hand and, you know, prays really hard to the fire kami to set this person on fire. And if the kami are enticed enough, then they consume the blood and then they become kansen, which are perverted elemental spirits. Yeah. And then they do the thing. But once perverted, they cannot be purified. Paying for things in blood taints you. Yeah. So it is... Sorry, Dan. (laughs) Yeah. Sorry, Dan. It is a slippery slope because, yeah, you you pay for it once and it feels really good to have your will be done. Mm -hmm. And then you just keep paying for it in blood. And before you know it... You're a goopy mess. Or an Oni steals your name. Hey-oh. Speaking of Oni, they are one of the enemies for Beyond. They are usually summoned and stay in the physical world by stealing the names of those who summon them. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are a couple of famous Oni that have come into existence because somebody was like, hey, I want to summon an Oni to do my bidding. And then they couldn't control them properly. And the Oni yoinks their name. There was a guy named Akuma. Yeah. And, you know, of course, he summons an Oni, so it becomes Akuma no Oni. Uh I think there was a Kanuye, and, that, you know, she couldn't control her Oni, so there's a Kanuye no Oni. There's all these different Oni that just, yeah, rip names and take on traits of the people whose names they steal mm-hmm. while still being, you know, Oni in and of themselves. Yeah. Um, spirits come from the various realms and are influenced by the realms they come from. So uh, the realm of Chikashudo, which is an animal realm. Giant animal spirits, giant wolves, giant bears, like massive bees. Um, the realm of Gakido, which is the realm of the hungry dead. Uh, you would have your typical flesh-eating zombies, right? Depending on which spirit realm the spirits come from, there are effects on the world where they manifest and like the places they haunt. Mm-hmm. So if it is a spirit from the realm of dreams, it's possible that people in that area when they sleep will have their dreams twisted or affected in some way, or won't be able to sleep at all. Yeah. Uh, Other non-humans that exist in the world, but are typically pretty scarce, include Kenku, which are bird folk, Zokujin, which are kind of like lizard folk, Mm -hmm. uh, Nezumi, rat folk, Ningyo, mermaids, and Kitsu, which are like lion folk, or or Leonin. The less, sorry, the more common are goblins and ogres which, again, exists primarily in the Shadowlands. Yeah. Uh, there are also the Naga, which are snake folk, that exist in large parts of the colonies and hide in a lot of forests, but they went to sleep for thousands of years and have only just started waking up in the canon. Um, all of these different non-humans are potential enemies, but each of them have a specific place within the world and why they would be an antagonist, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, a Kenku isn't going to rock up to you in the middle of a city and just pick a fight with you. It doesn't... They don't exist in the same way that they exist in D&D. Yeah. They exist in small pockets in remote places, right? Um, like, Nezumi, the, the rat folk, are common in the Crablands because they resist the taint outright, mm-hmm. right? So they scavenge and live in a lot of the Shadowlands and the crab actually view them as a good omen because they're like hey these things can't be tainted they're kind of weird and they're kind of rude but like (laughs) we like them but we like them right (laughs) yeah there is a uh there's a whole crab warship that is crewed by Nezumi and it's like kind of a cool little bit of the lore adorable yeah it is interesting because we did talk a little bit about how and when you compare Elfivar to D and D, like D and D has all types of races. No, no one, not everybody is a human. But like in Rokugan, technically those who like operate in the cities tend normally be the human side. So it's nice to hear about the ones that are not necessarily human. Yeah. But uh, but that being said, um, talking about antagonists and just in general, do we prefer political or military? I personally am not the biggest fan of the combat system in Elfivar. Crazy. I know. Something How strange. In a in a game centered around a warrior society, I don't like the combat system. Fair enough. I find that it's it can be a little slow. Yeah. Especially when you play with more than a certain number of players. Yeah. The the action economy in L5R is really weird mm-hmm. in that like you do one thing a turn up until like rank three. Yeah. And then most of the things that I need to throw at you either outright negate or ignore things that you do to them or they die in two rounds yes and that's the yeah that action economy is very hard to balance 
so I prefer political or social antagonists because it forces the players to solve their problems with their brains. Yeah. And I find that it tells more interesting stories. Mm -hmm. I find that combat in L5R should be quick, decisive, and, like, always lethal. Yeah. Right? It should be crippling. Most of the time. If you go through a fight every session in L5R, then you're playing a very specific kind of game. Mm -hmm. And your characters cannot keep up with that level of attrition. Yeah. Right? It's normally, if you're fighting every session, you should be in the middle of a war. Yep. No, it's very hard to... I think that's the big leap that people have to remember when they're jumping from D&D or, like, any other role-playing game that is combat-heavy into L5R is that, like, you should not be fighting every session. Like, you should be having a lot more conversations around things. And that's why I like the idea of using a military antagonist to enforce the idea that war and battle should not be the goal of that antagonist being in existence. Yeah. Right? So just because your antagonist is, like, a war leader or, like, let's say you're going to war with another clan or what have you. Like, there are so many options that you can utilize within L5R and the way that things work to be able to say, we don't need to go to war today. Let's figure out a political way to solve the military issue. Exactly. So, and I think that's what challenges players a lot, too, right? Because their first instinct when jumping from role-playing game to role-playing game is to be like, oh, let's just fight it and and let's kill the man and we're good to go, Right. No, not always the answer. Like, we've ended campaigns where the person we were trying to kill, we didn't end up killing them. Or something else happened. Or we, like, let them do something else, right? I like the political antagonist because I love a good role-playing battle at the table. But I also like the military antagonist to, like, challenge your players to think differently. Yeah. Uh, which non-human race would you play in a game as? As? Yeah. I am a... So I, I, I have two two answers for this. Yeah. Um... Of all of the different races, I really like the Kenku. Yeah. Because the Kenku have, one, they have photographic memories. Mm-hmm. And that lends itself to the Kenku swordsman school that exists, yeah. where it's rank five technique is, I look at the thing that you've done, I see it once, and I can replicate it perfectly. Yeah. Which is, it's it's bonkers. <laughs> it is the only school in the entirety of, I think, the the, the, the entire core, all the supplemental books that does something weird like that. Yeah. I think it's really cool. Mm-hmm. My favorite NPC that I have run, yeah, I would say probably one of my favorite NPCs, was a Nizumi Swordsmaster. Yeah. Who trained under a Kenku. And he ended up being the Swordmaster and the, the bodyguard to another character, another NPC in the game. And he was effectively just Master Splinter. Yeah. Right? <laughs> that was going to be the reference I was going to make. <laughs> no, he, he was just like, I, I wrote a Rokugani Master Splinter, and um, he, yeah, he was probably one of the more more fun characters that I got to that I got to run as an NPC. Yeah. I would like to do, like, Nezumi is the one that I would like to do. Um, only just because, like, that's the one that I have the most exposure to, and a couple of my, like, one of our friends did a PC already that was a Nezumi, yeah. and, like, his character was really fun to play with. And then I started reading about them more when I started doing my campaign because we were involved with the taint. And then, of course, we start reading about the taint. You read about different ways to get rid of it, avoid it, all those pieces. Mm-hmm. And then Nezumi come up a lot because of their, you know, they're, they're immune to it. They, they live with it, all those kinds of things, right? So especially knowing the campaign that I'm running right now, I feel like they would be a good race to bring in, right? Yeah. So that's what I would want to play. Also, like, snake people, just because. Why not? The Naga are really cool. (laughs) (laughs) They, uh... There's a long history of them uh, breeding within the Empire, because they... They're not, like, snake people in the traditional sense. Yeah. They can take more human forms, and that's led to a lot of relationships and, like, close partnerships throughout the Empire. Yeah. So, uh, specifically with the Dragon Clan, like, there are a lot of dragon who have Naga heritage. Mm Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's pretty cool. It's cool. <laughs> I feel like that's just going to come up at one point in time in the bloodline. It's just like every once in a while, there's just like, oh. <laughs> oh, it has. It definitely has. And it's it's caused issues. <laughs> I bet. Um, what is a quick adventure hook involving one of these, like, kind of antagonists that we've been talking about? So I'm going to do one with, uh, you know, the enemies from within and then one with the enemies from beyond. Okay. So uh, enemies from beyond. There is a village that hasn't slept 
for a month. Mm-hmm. And people are starting to, like, make mistakes. They're starting to, like, ha- there be accidents. People are dying because nobody's sleeping. Nobody's able to rest properly. And it's because there is a spirit from the realm of dreams who's just hanging out. Not even actively being malicious. It's just like, yeah, this little girl had a really nice dream. And I spent too much time in the dream because it was really nice. And I just showed up. Yeah. And I don't know how to get back. So I'm just going to stay here. You know you're causing a problem, right? So? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) You want to fix it? Send me home. Yeah. (laughs) Uh, And then with the enemies from within, uh, like, bandits are really simple. Yeah. But empowering your bandits. So again, having one of them be a samurai. Having one of them be a shugenja. Yeah. Because it's like, oh yeah, there's this whole crew of bandits that are that have gone and taken over this one castle. How'd they take over the castle? Well, they've got two Ronin Shugenja with them. We got that guy. <laughs> one, of, one of them froze the castle. <laughs> oh, is that why it's snowing in the middle of summer? Yes, that's why it's snowing in the middle of summer. That type of shit, right? Yeah. Oh, I love that. That's very cute. No, um... I, like, we, I recently used Oni in mine, and it's, like, everybody always wonders, like, why would you want an Oni to take over your life and, like, take your name and all these things? And it's, like, mostly because of arrogance. You're just an idiot that doesn't know that that's what's going to happen. Or you think that you are strong enough to, like, maintain and control this thing. Yeah. And, like, I just love that idea of, like, either a player that's seeking it or, like, and play, like, a darker campaign. Um, or do, like, you know, the classic, you know, you run across a cult of some kind that's trying to, like, bring an Oni up to life and all those kinds of things, and then, like, it ends up happening, and that could be a good, like, beginning to your plot hook of we hunt down this Oni, right? Wow. Yeah. Or they stop it. Mm-hmm. As for enemies with him, I, I like ninjas. Well, I would want to use ninjas. And, like, I like the idea that within a town there's, like, a story, like, again, to your point, that they're told within plays, right? Like, they're written about. They're not necessarily, like, talked about as if they exist. And there's a play, of, of course, of this, like, famous ninja or this ninja crew that, like, operates within the city that keeps it safe. And that actually exists. Right? And then it's the, the whole process of maybe it could be, like, one of, like, the, the gang lord cities or what have you. And there's, like, a, a small group of ninja that just take care of everybody. Right? And, yeah, I think that would be fun to play. But. Nice. Very cool. Mm-hmm. All right. That's enemies and things. All right. So there does appear to be a lot of things that go bump in the night. The Empire must be a pretty frightening place. Like, it certainly can be. Uh, but luckily, there's a whole profession centered around maintaining order in the Empire. But wait, we'll fix it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, the Magistrate yeah. is integral to making sure that like things run smoothly. They're not cops. Yeah. They, they are, but they aren't. They're like, yeah... They're also judges. They're detectives. I was going to say, it's like, more detective than it is, like, police ossifer, you know? Yeah, yeah. right? Um, there are a variety of different magistrates in Rokugan. There's three distinct types. Mm-hmm. Uh, clan magistrates uphold the laws of their specific clan. Emerald magistrates uphold imperial law. And jade magistrates specifically handle magic-related cases throughout Rokugan. Mm-hmm. Each of the different kinds of magistrates answered directly to different offices, though all were tasked with enforcing the laws within their jurisdiction. Mm-hmm. So, clan magistrates generally had duties to find that were similar from clan to clan. Higher-ranking magistrates served as judges and as overseer of lower-ranking magistrates. Uh, magistrates might be assigned to a specific area or city, or they might travel a circuit within their clan's lands, dispensing justice and investigating crimes where needed. Emerald magistrates adjudicated the emperor's laws. They had broad powers to achieve this goal, including the standard powers to recruit assistants and to hold court common to all magistrates. But their powers were only applicable to cases where capital offenses had been committed or in multi-clan situations. The Emerald Magistrates were under the aegis of the Emerald Champion and therefore the Emperor themselves. So, the Emerald Champion is the personal bodyguard of the Emperor or Empress. Yeah. The Emerald Magistrates have the ability to rock up to a specific clan and be like, hey... We heard that there is a weird thing going on here. Really? Who told you? This guy told us. We need to gather everybody in town. We're going to hold a court to figure out what happened. They just call a court out of nowhere. Yeah. Which is like no small feat. Right? But if you don't listen, 
Emerald Magistrates goes back to the Emperor, and your town gets set on fire. <laughs> Leveled. You're done. <laughs> right? It's, it's, it's with the utmost scrutiny mm-hmm. <laughs> and prejudice. Like, do not pass go. Do not collect 200. No. Jade Magistrates are the investigators under the Jade Champion. They are tasked with crimes involving magic and the arcane. Specifically, the Jade Magistrates are some of the foremost hunters of Mahosukai, or blood speakers, in Rokugan. The primary goal was the eradication of blood magic throughout the Empire. They hunt down demons. They hunt down demon summoners. Mm -hmm. That is their whole thing. So the Emerald Magistrates are like, yeah, there's been a smuggling ring in this town. The Jade Magistrates deal with, oh, there is a blood speaker cult in this town. Mm-hmm. There are a bunch of goblins who have decided that they're going to try and raise their, like, long-dead king in this town. That's what Jade Magistrates deal with. All right. Well, out of these magistrates that we've talked about, uh, which one interests you the most? I fucking love clan magistrates. Yeah? Because even though it's it's your responsibility to do all these things, like, I play a lot of them like beat cops. Mm-hmm. And it's just like, I don't want to be here. Yeah. I, like, I've been traveling for the last, like, three weeks to on every, Everyday human person, yeah. yeah just, like, <laughs> Joe Blow, who's, like, generally pretty worn down and stretched thin. Most people can't become magistrates. Not for, like, any lack of ability on their part, but I like to think of it as that, like, they don't appoint those positions very often. And because they don't appoint those positions very often, the the people who are in that line of work are just constantly overworked. Yeah. It's like, I'm on my 12th, 12th day shift that's nine hours long, and I just want to go home and do nothing. <laughs> I have two more days before I get two days off, and then I'm back on for another 14, I'm Like right? five days away from retirement. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, every every clan magistrate is fucking John McClane, you know? You were right. Um, I would say the Emerald Magistrates interest me the most, but I probably would not use them in my campaigns, like, to a, to a large degree, right? The amount of power that they hold to be able to walk up and just be like, no, we're holding a court, no, we're doing this, oh, you're not going to do that, cut and burn the city. Like, the fact that they hold that much power over the group, like, it's... That's your drop and run ticket as a GM if, like, your group is doing something uncouth or what have you. There's no real reason for it to occur, again, unless you're a war is starting, something's happening in the background. Like, if you see one of these rock up to a random small town, something's probably going awry. Yeah. Right? So I find them very interesting, but it's like I would sparingly use them. I, I try to make sure that there's at least one at every court. Yeah. Whether or not they're good at their job is an entirely different thing. Because you, as you gain more power, yeah. the power stagnates, right? Fair. So, yeah, you know, I was a pretty good clan magistrate. I did my job, but I was really tired, and oh, yeah, I'm, I'm ready to retire. Well, you're ready to retire, but we have this position as an emerald magistrate, and do you just want to go be an emerald magistrate in this buttfuck nowhere island? Yeah. Yeah, I can sit on the beach and drink coconut drinks all day. That sounds really good. Yeah. <laughs> and you rock up to this island that is not rampant with crime, but, like, it's just really easy to turn a blind eye, and you're like, yeah. I am, I'm so over it. Most of my Emerald Magistrates are fucking just so inept. <laughs> it's either nepotism or just, like, burnout. And they're like, what do you want me to do, man? Yeah. <laughs> Fuck off. I could tell. What? You want me to write a letter to the Empress? Cool. I'll write a letter to the Empress. You want to know what's going to happen? No, no. Don't write a letter to the Empress. Like, <laughs> don't do it. I promise. They are a... They're encouragement for your players to solve the problem themselves. Mm-hmm. Otherwise, a simple and efficient solution will arrive whether they like it or not. Yeah. No, oh, 100%. Uh, but, like, Jade Magistrates are the ones that I feel like I would use the most should things occur. Like, it's very easy to be like, hmm, blood magic occurred. Jade Magistrate appears. 100%. Like. Because that's also, like... That is the course of action, yeah. right? It's not, oh man, let's, jinkies guys, we should try and figure out who the ghost in this place is by ourselves. It's, no, we're going to call the, the nearest jade magistrate because I can't kill spirits. Yeah. I can't throw fireballs, right? Like. <laughs> but I know someone who can. <laughs> but I know a whole group of people. That will do the thing. Who will bust this ghost for us. 
Who are you gonna call? I now I want to make a Jade Badger group called the Ghostbusters. That'd be really sick. The Oni Busters. Mm. Busting makes you feel good. Hey oh. Hey oh. Uh, hardboiled detectives versus buddy cops. I typically lean more towards the hardboiled detective. Yeah. Yeah. I I'm a big fan of that style of cinema. I fucking love film noir. Yeah. So most most of my magistrates who are good at their jobs are like. I uh, hold the match down to my fingertips just so I can feel something. Like, they're those people, yeah. right? Um, the, the buddy cop roles, I find, are more entertaining for players to play. Yeah. Right? You have the the one super straight-laced samurai from one clan and the one, like, more laissez-faire, like, let's do what we gotta do samurai from another clan, and you let them play that role opposite a hard-boiled samurai detective. Yeah, I was gonna say, like, for playing, because I did play a buddy cop at one point with one of our friends, where, like, she was a very hard, steadfast investigator, and I was a Shosuro, um, fucking assassin. (laughs) (laughs) And we played buddy cop for a while, trying to figure things out and trying to investigate and do the things that we needed to do. And in the end, though, because unfortunately the way that Rokugan works, like, the things that my character had to do made it so that she could no longer be buddy cop with this person. Otherwise, it would put that person in danger. Yeah. So they had to separate at some point, right? So uh, heartbreaking. The but big like, sad. It, was, it was fun to play, though, right? Yeah. Like the good cop versus the bad cop going into a situation and be like, and, but then the best part of it was, though, is that she was actually the stronger one. So if we ever ended up getting into a kerfuff, she was the one that actually caused the most damage. Yeah. Because right? my, my character was built to hide in the shadows and stab from a distance. Her character would hit you with a bat. Yeah, tap right? it with a bat. <laughs> <laughs> so, so it was actually a very fun, like, dynamic to play. Because they'd be like, oh, well, the scary dog syndrome of, like, the Shosuro sitting behind her shoulder. It's like, well, no, actually, that one's scarier than I am. Yeah, so. she, she is the scary one. <laughs> <laughs> All right, how would you run an inter-clan investigation? It is entirely dependent on whose lands you're in. Yeah. If you are in... Well, we'll take two clans. We'll say it's a, a phoenix-unicorn yeah. joint. Um, if you're in the unicorn lands and, you know, there's a phoenix magistrate who's doing their thing, then, like, any unicorn magistrates who show up take point. And yep. are the ones who, like, kind of call the shots. They are going to try their best to help with the investigation. But, like, that is... You defer to the person whose lands you're in. Yeah. Right? It becomes their problem, their jurisdiction, their matter of honor. Mm-hmm. If you're a neutral ground, then it's kind of a free-for-all. Yeah. It it depends on... Duel. <laughs> Like, it, it could come down to a duel, depending yeah. on, you know, who decides that they don't want to work together on the situation, right? Yeah. Um, I I like the interclan investigation, because, again, it's about throwing juxtaposition and different dynamics at each other, right? We want to solve the problem the unicorn way. We want to solve the problem the phoenix way. Which way ends up winning out? Well, the phoenix way is to sit in the library and look at all of these historical documents to see if there's any precedent. Mm-hmm. the unicorn way is to go and speak to all the peasantry and all the shopkeeps and all the people in town. Get all the rumors. Get all the rumors. Get all the testimony. Yeah. Right? Uh, and you, each of those things have merit, but each of those things also have issues that come up with them, especially when you're trying to work both with and against yeah. the other party. Because solving the crime comes with a bonus of glory, Right? You're the one who figured it out. We're all going to talk about you. We're going to make sure that, you know, your superiors know about you, right? And yeah. that, that is always something that you sort of jockey for, is the opportunity to gain more glory. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I can also imagine, like, it comes down to, like, a, how imperative is the issue to solve and how quickly do we need to solve it, right? Especially when you kind of consider what clan you're in and whose powers you have at your disposal. So, like, to your point, if you have a Phoenix clan who wants to sit down and read books for three weeks, it's like, we don't have that kind of time. So, congratulations, thank you for the idea, but we're actually going to go with the unicorn because we think it's going to go faster. Mm-hmm. Because we just need to figure out what happened, what went down. I have 24 hours to figure this out because I'm three days away from retirement. And, <laughs> <laughs> and then that's just how it would go, right? Especially when you're playing in like a... I find that with L5R, you do tend to play at a slower pace naturally, just because there is a lot more opportunity for role play and like that political intrigue part of it. 
Um, but there's sometimes days where you're just like, nope, I just want to figure it out, right? Yeah. Like, let's get to the answer, get to the bottom of it. And the fun part is, is depending on what clan or, like, if you're having a dispute of who gets to solve the issue, depending on what direction your group goes, you as a GM can decide if they get the right answer or not. Yeah. Like... Maybe it was a better idea to take the time and read the documents because you would have found a history of this XYZ thing happening in this town at one point in time. But instead, you decided to go with the rumors that have happened within the last three weeks, which don't justify what happened before. Exactly. Right? So it's kind of like, okay, well, yeah, you decided to go the quick way, but... Ah! Did you, did you get where you did were you, going? Did you get it right? Yeah. Right? So, and I feel like <laughs> that's a fun way to play, like, the interclan investigation. It's like, what direction you go and the information that you gather is it going to be correct yeah and like that does do a lot of pre-planning unfortunately for a dm to be like okay well if this person is involved in this investigation what kind of information would they figure out and if your group decides to go in that direction figuring out what that looks like for them right and that's that's why it helps to narrow the scope as well yeah like you go into those sorts of stories thinking okay it's gonna be two clans and like maybe a third less important clan and but it's really going to highlight these two clans and their approaches mm. and then you write with those things in mind but you don't go i'm going to throw all nine of the great clans and a bunch of minor clans into yeah. this like who done it clue type knives out murder investigation right okay but can we do that no <laughs> it would be so fun no <laughs> What murder? <laughs> <laughs> no, I want to play a whodunit. We could play it. We're going we're to be playing a whodunit. Yeah. One thing that we touched on a lot at the beginning of the episode was the spirit realm of Jigoku. Mm -hmm. But there are other spirit realms as well. Uh, there are, in fact, 11 different major realms uh, into which the universe is organized. Uh, there are three methods that you can enter a spirit realm, which is, you know, via death, specific passages or portals, or spontaneous transition. Okay, Goku. <laughs> <laughs> the realms are all sorted by their celestial purpose along an axis. Mm. So there is the axis of creation and reincarnation, and they intersect at the realm of mortals. Yeah. So the axis of creation is Tengoku, Ningendo, and Jigoku. So the celestial heavens, the mortal realm, the realm of evil. Heaven, hell, earth. Simple. Phenomenal. Right? Uh, the axis of reincarnation uh, consists of uh, Miedo, the realm of waiting, uh, Gakido, the realm of the hungry dead, Toshigoku, the realm of slaughter, Yomi, the realm of blessed ancestors, uh, Chikushudo, the realm of animals, and Maigo Nomusha, the realm of thwarted destiny. There are two more realms known as Sakaku, so which is the realm of mischief, mm -hmm. and Yumeido, the realm of dreams, which are not a part of the axes of creation and reincarnation. Okay. They're just realms that exist in orbit with the other realms. Mm -hmm. So in the axis of creation, the celestial heavens act as home to all of the fortunes, the elemental dragons, and the sun and the moon. All but two emperors of Rokugan reside there, and mortals are not normally allowed to see Tengoku. Though, living emperors are supposedly able to perceive the realm at will. It is a swirling cloud-filled eddy of peace and light and acts in direct opposition to Jigoku. Ningendo is the realm of mortals, and the realm in which Rokugan exists, mm -hmm. along with all the other powers on the same world. The mortal realm is composed of a balance of the five elements, as well as the influence of thunder in mortal souls. Mm-hmm. There are so many wild and different things for all of these different realms. So um, Miedo, the realm of waiting, is the home of the fortune of death. And it's sort of like a limbo for the newly dead. You chill there when you die. Yeah. And wait to be judged. Wait to be brought to the place where you were judged by all of your ancestors. And I'm like, yeah, you did a great job. You get to go to Yomi, the realm of blessed ancestors which is Samurai Valhalla, mm -hmm. or um, you died in a senseless battle thinking of revenge. You get to go to Toshigoku, the realm of slaughter. Or, no, you lived a selfish and dishonorable life. We're going to send you to Gakido, the realm of the hungry dead, so you can feast on the other hungry dead until you have cleansed the stain of your karmic you know, weight. And then you might get to reincarnate. Gross. Right? What <laughs> wild shit. Um, Maigo Nomusha, the realm of thwarted destiny, is a super cool spirit realm in that, like, 
those who did not achieve their great potential are sent there. And it's like, yeah, what were you supposed to do? Well, I was supposed to become clan champion, but I died in a duel against my um, brother because we were both in love with the same girl. Yeah. And here I am because I chose that. Choices. Right? Yeah. In in a, it's, it's a world of choices, you know? Yeah. Um, Sakaku, the realm of mischief, and Yumido, the realm of dreams. Like, as we as we discussed earlier, sometimes spirits from different places will just find themselves in the mortal realm. Mm-hmm. And the realm of mischief and the realm of dreams are my favorite places to draw from. Oh, yeah. Like, everybody's left chopsticks have been going missing. Surprise, there's a spirit from the realm of mischief that's just like... Oh, being a dick. Yeah. Being a dick, right? <laughs> well, that being said, so you mentioned that those are the two that are, interest you the most. Those are the ones that I draw from the most because they have the lowest stakes, right? If you're drawing uh, caretaker spirits from the realm of the dead into your, you know, Saturday morning cartoon, like, it tends to get heavy. Yeah. (laughs) That's a longer conversation, you know? (laughs) Yeah. Um, But again, like, uh, Maigonomusha, the realm of thwarted destiny, is the one that I like the most. Yeah. That's fair. How about you? I'm a fan of the the realm of waiting. I think that's because I'm the most familiar with it. Uh, mostly because my characters have dabbled in the realm of waiting, and yeah. we've, we've been there once or twice in our life, you know? Um, and I just find that it's a very interesting place to be, because, like, every... It's almost like every religious aspect or every, like, process of death requires a realm of waiting. So it's very recognizable to people when you're playing a role-playing game that there is a realm that you go to after you die to decide what happens to yourself. Yeah. Whether it is a whether it is a religion or a belief system that believes in reincarnation, whether it's one that believes in the Valhalla, whether it's one that believes in, like, whatever, right? There's always a place that you go first. A place of pause. Yes. And I feel like that's what this realm kind of gives you. And I did actually have one of my players fall into the realm of waiting because he did die. Mm-hmm. And then he did a thing that gave an opportunity to come back. Because he, as soon as he went to that realm, it was like, shit. It's either I have to, either it's my time to be judged and their judgment was basically like, nope, you have more to do. Get the fuck out of here. Like, move on. Right? It gives you as a GM an opportunity to give pause. Yeah. So in D&D, we always look at like, or other role playing games, you kind of look at opportunities for if your players die and you don't want their job to be done yet, Realm of Waiting is a good thing to throw into there. Like, it's very easy. Yeah. You go in there, you meet your makers, you you have a good session, you have a good moment. Right? Move on. Nice. But like... We talked about this even before this episode about, like, the, the intersection of everything and, like, the axis and all that kind of stuff and how things appear within the world. Yeah. And, like, that interests me a lot in the sense that, like, there's one spot where all the axes is. Realm of mortals, baby! Yeah, and I was like, that's pretty cool! Like, like and these are the things that, like, you don't necessarily adhere to because it's not a big piece of your story, Right. But it's something to keep in mind with everything that's going on and that all of these things exist interchangeably and as you're operating within your world, right? And, like, it's cool that it all intersects in the realm of morals, but it also makes sense because a lot of these things can't exist without mortals. Yeah. Right? There cannot be dreams without those to dream them. There cannot be destiny without those to, like, live lives and do great things. You can't have ancestors if nobody is there to come before you right so the the realm of mortals and the existence of mortals is is so inherently divine and inherently spiritual which is really cool yeah that's fair uh which one of these realms would you not want to be trapped in fuck gakido (laughs) i hate being hungry yeah it is like I can deal with a lot of different sensations pretty passably, mm-hmm. and I'm okay with being hungry for extended period of time, but there comes a point where my hanger gets so unreal, and it's like, please don't talk to me, I will rip out your throat for sustenance. <laughs> <laughs> like... I've never experienced that before. I don't know what you, you're talking you've about. You've never seen Hangry Roro? I don't think so, to be honest with you. You're, you know what? Again, it's because it's something that I know is an issue with me, so yeah. I've learned to really contain it. Oh, there have been days, especially at work, when it's like, okay, I know I have another hour until it's time for food, but I've worked a couple of really physical jobs early in the day, and mm-hmm. I chose not to eat breakfast because I was late or some shit. Yeah. And just, it's the perfect storm of... I will eat a small child if they wander too close. 
<laughs> and I remember going to like this, this whole sidebar. I remember going to Disneyland when I was like very restrictive with things that I was eating. And like you, when you're being restrictive about the things that you consume and you go to a place like Disneyland, you cannot find food. Yeah. And like, I remember going there and I remember like yelling at the people that I was with because I was so angry because I was so hungry, but I couldn't find anything to eat. And it was my own fucking fault because it was a decision that I made to not eat certain foods. Like, <laughs> well, don't live uh, selfishly or dishonorably and you won't be sent to Gakido. Oh my God. <laughs> which, uh, which spirit realm would you hate to be trapped in? Realm of slaughter. I would hate, I would love it and I would hate it at the same time. Okay. Like I, I I think it's hilarious that you get stuck there because it was a senseless battle. So it's almost like you get, you like, like you die, you die in your battle or your fucking duel or whatever. And you end up here and you're like, shit, damn it. I thought that meant everything to me. You know what I mean? Like you have that introspective moment of just like, I thought that that battle was going to be like the big end all be all or of, of my entire existence or that duel that I had with my brother to save my fucking love of my life. And I lost and now I'm here because it was a senseless fucking battle. Are you kidding me? <laughs> oh, this is what you want? Go ahead. Have some more. Yeah. <laughs> Go ahead. Take it. Take keep, it. Take, keep fighting. Keep fighting. And it's like, oh, was that even worth it? Fuck that. All right. Reincarnations. We've talked about it quite a bit. Uh, it is a big deal in Rokugan. How would you use it in your campaign? Uh, I use it occasionally yeah. in my campaign. And it's normally in between games. Um, mm -hmm. One thing that we'll end up talking about later on is the idea of legacy characters. Yeah. And I try to use legacy characters as a way of showcasing not only player decisions and the children of players, but also to showcase past players. Yeah. So what, one thing that I do in my games is I'll make character cards. And on the cards, I will add little titles or keywords or descriptions that emphasize important things about the character. Kind of like an L5R TCG card, that's almost. That's crazy. How weird. Why? I have no idea yeah. where, why, Where how. you would get that idea from. And one of the keywords that I like to use when a character is a reincarnation or inspired by someone is soul of. Yeah. So it is the soul of this character. Mm. It was something that they used in the TCG to justify reprinting old cards. Yeah. So they would change a name, but then in the text box, it would have soul of the original card name. Mm -hmm. So I, I use that as a way of being like, so this character that you all remember and love and had all of these awesome interactions with, this character is going to have some of their mannerisms. Yeah. This character is going to have similar story beats. Because Rokugan is a setting where a lot of history is cyclical, where a lot of the heroes that are sent back to live their lives again and to try and learn those lessons and do things differently, yeah, a lot of the time, they don't. Mm -hmm. Right? Because you are expected to live a lifetime and learn a lifetime's worth of lessons, to learn multiple lifetimes' worth of lessons. In, with no prior knowledge, mm -hmm. with very little assistance. Yeah. And I feel like that's where NPCs come in handy a lot in this game because they can represent these aspects for your players without your players having to experience it themselves. Yeah. So I would definitely have um, NPCs who make decisions for your group should that issue arise. Like, let's say something uncouth needs to occur You've got someone like an NPC that's like, no, I'll be your sacrificial lamb. I will start this process for you. And everybody's like, well, why? Why would you do that? And it's like, well, because I've done this before. Maybe it'll be different this time. Yeah. Right? And it's just like a sentence that references the fact that like, it's okay. I'm going to, I'll get another chance to do it again. But today, this is my choice to do it today. Yeah. Like the, the acceptance and the understanding that when you die, yeah, there is a good chance you're coming back and that a good death is sometimes its own reward, right? That is a, kind of a weird concept for a lot of people when they write characters or when they, they play in role-playing games. Mm -hmm. Because the idea that, oh, like, oh, my precious character. I'm holding on to this character. I want to play them as long as I can. Yeah. Whereas in L5R, you want them to die well. You want yeah. to write characters who are going to die for something important. Yeah. No, for sure. And, like, if, like again, you have to remember as a GM that your NPCs are going to be written the same way. 100%. Right? So again, like even if you have that NPC that's kind of just like, yeah, I'm gonna I'll do this thing for you, or a player who's gonna do this thing for you, and like your your PC comes up to you and is like, yep, yeah, I'm gonna do this thing, and it's like, okay, well, you as a player would understand, or like you and Rogue would understand, this is the consequence of that. 
And then you can even role play out that conversation with the group and be like, I'm happy to do this thing because I feel like it's the good of the empire. And when my judgment comes, my judgment comes. Powerful stuff. Yeah. You can write stories about. <laughs> That's all for today's episode in this series on The Legend of the Five Rings. Make sure to like and comment, you know, which part of Enemy of the Empire interests you the most. Don't forget to follow or subscribe, because next episode we'll be exploring the deep, dark details of the actual Five Rings themselves. When you're resolved from the beginning, you will not be perplexed. This understanding extends to everything. Be resolved, young samurai, and tell the world what you have witnessed here today.